Well, turn in your Bible or your app to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and it's the last few paragraphs, starting in verse 36. And we'll go through verse 53. So if you'd follow along with me in Luke 24, verses 36 through 53, I'm going to go ahead and read it. And we'll go ahead and get started. Luke 24, 36 says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's ask for God's blessing on our time together in his word. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Luke that we have been so privileged to uh, walk through for the last year and a half. We pray, Lord, today as we uh, wrap it up that you would continue to um, bless us with the, the word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us um, many proofs that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, that he is not waiting to be found in some tomb in Jerusalem, that he is in fact seated at your right hand. And right now he's interceding for us. So we want to thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. And we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, right now we ask that you would do the work that only you can do, which is to open the eyes of hearts, to open deaf ears so that we might hear and be saved, that we might grow because of what we learn and hear today and that we might put it into practice. Lord, not out of our own power, but by the power that you promised your disciples in this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, here we go. We get to finish up. I don't know how many sermons it's been, but it's been since July 2017. We started before my son was born, and he is a big boy already. So this has been a long sermon series. Um, we've titled the sermon series, Our Certain Salvation, Walking in the Footsteps of the Man Who is God. And that's what we've attempted to do for the last year and a half, is to walk along with Jesus in the story that Luke has told us. Uh, Jim Hall, one of our elders, likes to call our church's middle name Bible. Village Bible Church. And so uh, we go through the Bible. This is what we do. We walk through the Bible and attempt to explain what it means 
so that we might apply it to our lives. And we um, are really excited about the opportunity that we have uh, in a month to start a new series um, on the Bible and why we can trust the Bible. And then after that, in the letter of James. But until then, we have one last uh, Sunday to get some work done here in the Gospel of Luke. Why don't you put your finger in uh, Luke 24 and turn back to Luke chapter 1. Just turn back to the beginning where we started so many months ago. I'd like to remind you of where we got the series title and why that bears on our understanding particularly of today's passage. So go back to Luke chapter 1 and just look at those first four verses as Dr. Luke tells us why he did the research, why he put this gospel together. Luke 1, one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were, what? Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have, what? Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And this is the same for us. We want to look at Luke's gospel in order to have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Many of you have been taught these things since you were babies. Some of you have only recently come into these things, but Luke wants us to have certainty. He wants us to understand that this is a true story and that the the meaning behind it is the most important in the whole world. So again, that's why this sermon series has been called Our Certain Salvation. Over the last several messages, we've walked through Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And Luke records for us some unique circumstances after Jesus rose from the dead. So we want to take a look at those very carefully and compare them to what we looked at last time, which is Jesus' appearance to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what Luke is doing in these appearances is attempting to give us as much evidence as he deemed necessary in compiling the narrative and putting it together and possibly comparing it with Matthew and Mark's accounts. And give us certainty that this Jesus really did rise from the dead. He is, as a doctor, uh, specifically trying to get us to see the evidence that Jesus is, in fact, alive. So I want you to take a look at Luke 24, starting in verse 36. And we're going to look at Jesus as he described himself after his resurrection as flesh flesh and bones Jesus. Flesh and bones Jesus wants his followers... To believe the evidence. Flesh and bones Jesus wants his followers to believe the evidence. Verse 36 picks, off, picks up right off uh, where we were last time. Which is the two disciples from Emmaus having walked with Jesus, not recognized him. Sat down in their home to eat a meal and then have their eyes open to recognize that it indeed was Jesus Christ. Serving the meal, breaking the bread, and then Jesus disappeared. Jesus disappeared. So I don't know what is a helpful uh, analogy for you, but one second he was there and the next second he was gone. I don't think he was beamed up and particled out of there, Star Trek style. I think one second he was there and the next second 
he was gone. And it seems that the two disciples hoof it back to Jerusalem. Probably took them a while because they're six or seven miles away, but they're so excited that they run uphill back to the capital city and they meet with the rest of the disciples and they begin to share what they saw. They find out that uh, unbeknownst to, to them, Jesus had also appeared to Simon Peter. So apparently Jesus is bouncing around in another dimension in Jerusalem, uh, now in his resurrected body, able to move in a way he wasn't able to before. As they were talking about these things, so what is this, an hour, two hours, three hours later, probably in the evening of the day that Jesus rose from the dead. They're talking about these things. They're having a conversation. Jesus himself stood among them. <laughs> Just imagine that happening. This is almost like something out of a fantasy movie or a sci-fi movie. Jesus just uh, himself stood among them. Now, Luke doesn't give us some kind of um, explanation for this, of how this was possible. There's no need for him to do that. He just says that Jesus wasn't there, and then Jesus was there. Now, I, I, if you can imagine that um, with me, that you're, you're in a room this afternoon after you go home from church, you're sitting and talking with family and friends, you're watching a football game or whatever, and all of a sudden there is one more person in the room than there was the second before. Imagine yourself in that. How would you respond? That would be an incredible circumstance. Maybe you wipe your eyes. Maybe you pinch yourself. Um, maybe you shake your head. Now, then add to that the fact that the person who is now apparently sitting among you, standing among you, died three days before. Now we're in a whole different kind of thing, okay? Now we're in a whole different kind of situation. And this is what happened among the disciples. Jesus himself speaks first and he says, peace to you. Peace to you. This was a standard Jewish greeting in Hebrew. It's shalom, shalom aleichem. He just, that's what they always said when they met each other. It's a hi, how are you doing? <laughs> Which is hilarious because Jesus shows up in a spectacular way and uses an unspectacular greeting. How are you guys doing? Ah! <laughs> okay. That's how we're doing. Verse 37 tells, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Okay, now this is actually not that odd because our society also has a fascination with angels, with spirits, with beings. There are constantly new TV shows um, that include uh, specters and ghosts and poltergeists and all these kinds of things. Um, we, we laugh at those things, but also there is a great industry in angels and angel imagery. Um, there are uh, all kinds of, uh, from one end of wacky to zany, beliefs about spirits and angels. And the Jews at the time were not uh, immune from those either. Okay, so in the theology of Judaism at the time, okay, they believed in angels, but they did not believe in ghosts. Did not believe in, in spirits coming back from the dead. Um, and they especially did not think that this could happen of um, someone who had been vis had died visibly. Okay, so this was someone you had evidence of having existed and they were gone. This did not happen. However, just because the theology said one thing does not mean that the people believed all the same thing. So there was kind of like a folk uh, popular belief that this in fact could happen. Right? Because there are things that we can't explain in this world. 
And so when we, when we see those things, we try to explain them. Often the explanation is, you didn't sleep last night. <laughs> You're really stressed out. You need to stop everything and go to sleep. You haven't eaten in a day. You need to eat some food, right? Those are some of the things that begin to fill our minds here at the beginning when we think about um, phenomena such as this. Okay, but, but we, we need to, I think, be sympathetic to the disciples. The, the disciples see a person in their midst that they thought was dead, and they have no rational explanation. So the really only way to respond is with fear. This is a terrifying prospect because this is unexpected. When the unexpected happens and when the spectacularly unexpected happens, often the response is fear. They thought they saw a spirit. Now this had happened with Jesus before, hadn't it? When the disciples were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee and there appeared to be somebody walking on the water. That's a little bit spectacular. In case you haven't tried it recently, it's really difficult. Okay? They, saw, they, saw, they thought they saw a spirit. They are, are not understanding what is in front of their eyes. Now, Jesus is not Samuel, okay, brought back by some medium. There's no necromancer in the room conjuring up um, Samuel from the dead, as the story in 1 Samuel 30 relates to us. Jesus, as we're about to see, is, is not um, a force ghost, okay? He is not appearing uh, in some kind of hologram, Jesus stands before them, and the next thing he says in verse 38 is, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, so add to all of the terrifying things we talked about now, and the man who appeared in the room can also read your mind. (laughs) Okay? You, You are completely at the whim of this person. If this person can can just appear in a room that from the dead and read your mind, you're finished. <laughs> you're done. You are in the presence of a being much mightier than yourself. And Jesus sees immediately that the doubts arise in their hearts. Now, we must assume from the passage before that the, the two disciples from Emmaus, Cleopas and the other unnamed disciple, were there in the room. And a few hours ago, they had shared a meal with Jesus. So is it just the 11 or do we compare with the gospel of john and thomas isn't there and then it's those two or is there a is it a big room with more people we're not sure but the disciples of jesus are there and they are doubting maybe they're rubbing their eyes Uh, maybe because of the trauma of the weekend of seeing their master seeing the one they thought was the messiah be brutally beaten and executed Um, maybe they couldn't sleep because of what they had seen Maybe they were pinching themselves and trying to figure this out, but they did not immediately believe. Seeing did not immediately lead to believing. Then Jesus, in his kindness and his grace, provides evidence. Jesus doesn't stand there in their midst and say, Come on, guys! Believe! I'm right here! He does more than that, and he doesn't do it in a condescending or a sarcastic manner. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. It is not, not necessarily it's me, it's I myself. I am really, really here. It is the real me. Not a different me, okay? This is not some weird twin thing, okay? It's me, and he says, see my hands and my feet. Now, why would he say that? Well, the... 
the people of the day generally wore sandals, okay? And they often had, um, as some of you got to experience in um, Bethlehem a few weeks ago, really wide sleeves, okay? And so his hands and his feet were evidently very uh, visible to the disciples there. And this man had just been executed. So Jesus shows them what we assume in Luke, because it's not mentioned, but see in the Gospel of John that he's showing them the scars, He's showing them the wounds. Now, this is very odd. Because if Jesus died and he's now back, why are there scars? <laughs> That's, someone didn't do a good job of fixing him up and sending him back. Okay, so what, what is happening here? Jesus is, is graciously appearing to them and giving them evidence by which to understand that he has risen from the dead. Just as he said, and as the scriptures had said. If you read Luke's sequel um, in the book of Acts, you'll see that at the very beginning of Acts, he again gives a rationale for his writing, and he says that in the time after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared with many proofs. And so that one of the primary things that Jesus does in between his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven in the presence of God is to give hundreds of people evidence that he really has risen from the dead. This is not any of those ridiculous books that I don't know why Christian publishers put them out about people going to heaven and relating all these wacky things that don't line up with scripture. This is a sober evidence that he has given to them. Look at my hands and my feet. Touch me and see. He invites them to touch them. He's not, he's not a, a ghost. They, their hands aren't going to pass through him. He says, touch me and see. And then he even says explicitly to them at the end of verse 39, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's trying to get them to wake up out of their stupor and say, what stands before you is a human being, a corporeal human being who has flesh and bones. Look at me as I stand before you and see this. Verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Luke repeats that on purpose so that they understand how important this was to Jesus. See my hands and my feet. I show them my hands and my feet. Okay, it's, it's repetitive so that we might notice that. Jesus gives them evidence so that they might believe. Jesus is not appearing as a voice. He's not the Cheshire cat in the corner of the room with just a grin. Okay, he's not saying, believe me. Oh, where is the voice coming from? He has shown up in the room. He's sharing the same air they're breathing. And he tells them to believe. You see, faith is not how it often is portrayed in our culture as blind. Faith is not blind. We don't take leaps of faith. We believe because we have good reason to believe something that is true. In fact, here's a really helpful uh, definition of faith. Uh, a gentleman named Jonathan Morrow has come up with this one, as far as I know. It's this. Faith is active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. Faith is active trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. This is what Jesus is doing for his disciples. He is giving them a good reason to believe that he is there. He is giving them multiple points of reference so that they might understand that he's there and believe. A more, uh, another definition of faith is the state of believing 
Now just leave it there, right? We say, oh, it's belief. No, no, it's not. It's belief in something. State of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. We all know this to be true. State of believing on the basis of the reliability of the one trusted. If you have someone in your life who is unreliable, you don't immediately believe them. Right? But someone in your life who has proved over and over and over and over again to be trustworthy, you believe them. Almost carte blanche, right? Why would I have any reason to doubt them? And so because of Jesus' life and ministry with them, in addition to the evidence that he is giving to them, he is totally believable. He is to- Listen, our faith is not baseless. Well, at least I have my faith. I mean, that just doesn't mean anything. Anybody could say that about anything. What is your faith in? Faith is belief. What are you believing in? Well, I just believe. That's an incomplete sentence. What, what, do, you, what do you believe in? And so I think a, a helpful way for us when we're talking with people is when we use the word faith, sometimes that can be misunderstood, is to use that word trust. Um, because that tends to be a more tangible word for us because we trust people every day. Okay, when, we, when you swipe that credit card, there is trust happening from both sides, right? When you get on a freeway, you're crazy if you don't have trust in other people, right? You are trusting and praying, sometimes out loud, that the people in the lanes next to you will hold to the same standards and rules that you are holding yourself to. So I think trust is a helpful way to, for us to conceive of the word faith because faith has been diluted and kind of taken away from us. So faith is active trust, and what you have good reason to believe is true. Jesus gives them the basis to have faith in him. Now notice, that does not activate their faith just because it happens. Okay? Many people would see or hear this and choose not to believe. Okay, so it's not merely a rational thing. It's not merely a rational thing, but it does entail rationality in it. As we'll see in a moment, there's more needed. Verse 41, while they still disbelieved for joy, which I find a very interesting phrase, disbelieved for joy. Um, some scholars think that that might not be the most helpful way to translate that. It might be a little bit more uh, colloquialism, like it's too good to be true. Okay, um, But whatever the case is, they're struggling with accepting what's in front of them. They're struggling to accept it. It's like the, that, that person that wins the prize of like a million dollars and the, they show up in the front yard with a check. Right? And like, no, that can't be. That's not, no way. I don't believe it. Like, no, your name's right here in the check. No, it's, this is a joke. Is this? Am I in candy camera? They're looking around, right? No, no, really, this is for you. Okay? It's, it's that, it's that disbelief for joy. This is way too good to actually have happened. And the good news is that their joy is the right response because this is true. They disbelieve for joy and were marveling. And while they're doing that, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? You see how Jesus is piling on the evidence for them? Look, I got scars. See my hands, see my feet. By the way, could I have some lunch? And they're fishermen, and so they give him some fish. Okay, they give him a piece of broiled fish. Can you imagine this? They, they, I can imagine one of the guys like walking up to Jesus, getting the fish, and they're all just kind of waiting for him. And Jesus pops that fish in his mouth. He took it and ate before them. Before them, in their presence. He shows them, look, I can eat. Okay, I'm not just a spirit. So what does this show us? 
Well, this is cool because this is a preview, as we read 1 Corinthians and some other letters in the New Testament, this is a preview of what your body and my body will look like in the resurrection. That there is continuity with our old bodies. And there is discontinuity in the fact that Jesus is showing up in places that he shouldn't be able to get into. Okay? Which, if you think about it, this is actually impossible. Okay? It's impossible for flesh and bone to go through a wall. I mean, I don't even need to show you, because if I did it, it would, it would be silly. I can't walk through that wall. Okay? Because, because I'm flesh and bones. But, it, you see, we have this popular belief, and we've watched enough movies and read enough books to know that a, a ghost could go through that wall pretty easily. Right? But now we're combining two things, that this, the spirit and the body come together and make for a, a greater, a better body. Jesus' resurrected body is new, but it is not unrelated to his old body. So the, the, mar, the, the scars show the continuity between his old body and his new body. And even though the disciples had trouble recognizing him, I think that was um, a little bit more of a, a spiritual thing than just uh, the rods and the cones and everything being gone through the optic nerve and understanding what they're seeing. Okay, they're seeing Jesus and he looks like Jesus. Jesus looks like Jesus. Okay, but there's something different now. There's something transformed. He is transformed, but he is made ready to live in a world that also awaits transformation. So it is not like the, the, the little girl who Jesus raised from the dead or the young man who was being escorted to his funeral that Jesus rose, raised from the dead. Okay, it's not like the, a few times in the Old Testament where someone was raised from the dead. They were re-resuscitated, okay? They were brought back to life. But this is, this is a different quality. This is someone who has not just been brought back to life, but been brought back to new life in a way that they will never die again. All those people that were raised from the dead, and there weren't that many, okay, by Jesus and in the Old Testament, they died later, right? So it was, it was, it was like a, a drastic resuscitation, okay? It's those stories that you read of the heart stopping and the brainwave stopping and everyone walking out of the room and, right, the person comes back to life, okay? That's not what happened to Jesus. He didn't gasp for air in the tomb and be like, wow, his heart stopped for four hours and it can't, started beating again. Okay, he, he, was, he was transformed. He was made new. This is the resurrection that we can expect when we are raised from the dead. He is really there. And one day we will really be there, but we will interact with the world in the same ways and in new ways. And if you ask me to explain all of that, I don't know how to explain all of that. But you should go read 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon and take a look at what Paul says there um, about the new bodies that we can expect. Because this body is not ready for the new heavens and the new earth. Correct? Some of you who uh, um, are a little bit on the grayer side of the congregation, okay, you understand that if this is what I get when I come back, I'm not sure I want to come back, <laughs> okay? But, but what happens when we come back is we get something very similar but better, okay? So when, when I come back, I will be Andrew Gilmore, okay, plus, all right? I will be prepared to live in the same recognizable, similar recognizable body, okay? But I will never die. I won't be affected by sin or sickness or cold or heat, and I will be prepared to live with Jesus forever. Now, it's interesting that Jesus eats here because that suggests a very good thing about our future. 
okay? Which sometimes, I don't know if, if you ever, like, think about the future when Jesus comes back and we're living in the new heavens and the new earth, but there's food. I mean, I, I think that this is a helpful suggestion that we're going to have food. And can you imagine food not tainted by sin? Okay, this is good news. Also, Peter uses the fact that he ate with Jesus as evidence for the Gentile crowd he's with in Acts chapter 10, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And Peter just kind of mentions it as, as one of the things that happened. But we need to, po- we need to make, make a point of Peter grabbed onto that. When Jesus rose from the dead and hung out with us, he ate food. He ate food. We, we saw that. We, we made the food for him and we ate with him. This is a, a, an evidence of Jesus' public resurrection appearances. Jesus is not appearing and hiding behind trees, okay, and, and like throwing his voice like a ventriloquist. Jesus is actually there in the flesh, okay? Now, as Jesus eats, I think that things settle down a little bit in the room. They're like, I don't believe my eyes, but this is actually happening. He just ate the fish. And Jesus begins to transition to teaching them. Now that they, their astonishment is starting to go away, now he can begin to teach them on what in the world they're seeing in front of their faces. And so flesh and bones, Jesus wants his followers to understand the scriptures. So he wanted them to believe the evidence, and now he wants to interpret the evidence by helping them understand the scriptures. Jesus is repeating himself. Jesus says this to them in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I, past tense, spoke to you while I was still with you. He's referring to his ministry prior to his death. Here is what I said to you. And if you look in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34, you can see that Jesus said exactly this. In fact, if you, you go there with me really quick, because it's so specific. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. This is right before... Jesus enters Jericho and he heals Bartimaeus and he talks with Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. Luke 18, verse 31, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, look how specific this is, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Jesus already said this, and if you have a little note in your Bible, this is actually the third time he's predicted his death, but this is the most specific time that he talks about some of the things that will precede his death, and then that fact that he will rise on the third day. And apparently this teaching was repeated because you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, the people that are scared that Jesus, something might happen here, remember that he said something about the third day. And so they post a guard at the tomb. So this was, this was known. This was remembered by not just his friends, but also his enemies. And so Jesus wants to explain to them that what has happened is not coming out of the blue, but is, has always been part of the plan of God and was even prophesied about ahead of time. So look at how Jesus does this. In the second half of verse 44, he says that everything written about me, which is a very arrogant statement, all those ancient works about moi, if any of us said that, you'd be like, remember when the Odyssey was written about me? The Iliad too, (laughs) the Aeneid, I mean, everything was about me. You'd be like, who is this guy? (laughs) 
What's he talking about? But Jesus is claiming that all these things were written about him. Where? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is using a shorthand for basically saying the entire Hebrew scriptures. The whole, as we would call it, Old Testament. So I want to put this, uh, this up on the screen for you. Um, if you have um, Jewish friends, they'll have a copy of the Bible, the Old Testament, and often it'll be called the Tanakh. Okay, and you can see it up there. I, uh, I uh, capitalized T, N, and K because those stand for the different sections of the Hebrew Bible. A Hebrew Bible is in a different order than our Bible order. Okay, you can see it on the screen behind me. The Torah is the same as ours. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, but then the Nevi'im, which is the N for Tanakh. Okay, and uh, those are the prophets. And look how they, uh, they put this together. Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And then Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the Twelve. The minor prophets were all put into one book called the Twelve. Then you get to the Ketuvim, the writings, or the K for Tanakh. And the order, it starts with the book of Psalms. And then you can see the, the order there uh, of how um, the Old Testament Bible was put together. Okay? So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, everything about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, and the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms. And he's probably, refer, he's probably using the Psalms to refer to the whole Ketuvim, the whole writings, because they start off the that part of the book, and they're huge, right? The Psalms, there's 150 of them. They take up a massive portion of the scripture. And so it seems that Psalms is a shorthand for the rest. What is he saying? All this is about me. All this is about me. How many of you have done a Bible reading plan and, and you've done straight through the Old Testament without going to the New Testament? Anybody done that? You're in it for a long time. Okay, you are in the Old Testament for a long time because it's more than two-thirds of the Bible. Jesus is saying, all of that is about me. That's an audacious statement because I don't see the word Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay, where, where is this? Well, I don't want to spend an, another half an hour just pointing out a bunch of Bible verses that are, that are in the Old Testament that talk about this. I will point out some, but I think that Jesus is doing more, he's doing something more specific than just saying Isaiah 52, 13. Which, by the way, they didn't have chapter or verse numbers, so he can't refer to that. Okay, he, he's referring to the whole way the story is told, what the story is leading to, what the story includes, the details. All of it is about me. Every song, every genealogy, every story, every law is about me. It's all about Jesus. And he says at the end of verse 44 that everything that's written there must be fulfilled. And Luke does this throughout his, his letter, he, his book. He says, must. He uses that word, or it is necessary. Um, it, it speaks of God's unchanging plan, that God is not guessing, God is not reacting to other things. God is moving forward, and it must take place. It must be fulfilled, because God cannot be stopped, and he is working out his plan. So, just as Jesus in Luke chapter 4 showed his neighbors from Nazareth that he was the fulfillment of one prophecy on one Sabbath day, now he's unfolding the whole story and saying the same thing. I fulfill all of this. Which, by the way, parentheses, please don't ever, 
ever, ever hear me saying that this means you shouldn't read the Old Testament. Never. Don't do that. Okay? I love the Old Testament. Um, and I think that sometimes we can go, one, it's old. Don't need that. Okay? So don't call it the Old Testament. Call it the First Testament or something. All right? Call it the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? If old makes you think of that, then don't do that. Okay? But what's happening in the, the story is that it's, it's moving forward. So that if you only read the New Testament, you are missing out on so many things. In fact, you'll read the New Testament and wonder, where did this come from? I don't understand this. What are you referring to? Because the Old Testament is setting everything up for Jesus. Now look at what he does in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is what we need. This is what we pray for. That we have our minds opened to understand the scriptures. Now, we can read the, the words on a page and understand it. We can read the words on the page and pass a test on what the content is. But that is not what the Bible is here to do. We need to comprehend. We need to grab onto what this is saying about my life and the life of the world. What the Bible is talking about is universe shaping. The Bible is speaking to is all of the created cosmos. And so in order to understand our fallen, broken minds can, can understand things, but we can't necessarily put all the pieces together without God coming in and acting. God had to invade human history in order to reveal himself. Paul in the book of Romans says, there's enough evidence in the universe that we know there is a God, but there's not enough evidence out there that we know who this God is or how he acts. So when you go to the mountains or you go to the desert or you go out to the ocean or you go to the beach and you think, wow, that's a good thing. That's a good response. That's a response every human being in some way has, whether or not you deny it or suppress it is another thing. But there's not enough in the beautiful waves of the ocean and the sun setting for you to go, there must be a God and he must be three persons and he must have sent his son to die on a cross halfway across the world from where I live to save me from my sins if I only believe in him. It's not written in the sky. It's written in the Bible. So God had to reveal that to us. He opened their minds so they could understand. Here we see the living word. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. We see the living word interpret the written word. That Jesus is sent to show us what the word means. He unfolds the story for them. And so there are three things that Jesus says here were written. Look at verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There are three components there. One is that the Christ would suffer. Um, that's the word where we get the word passion from. Okay? Um, the Christ would suffer. That includes everything up to and the death. That he would rise on the third day, that's specific, and that the message of forgiveness would go worldwide. Jesus is claiming, this is not new, I am fulfilling what the Old Testament talked about. Okay? It's the Old Testament veiled, now being revealed by Jesus. So just a few places to explain this. We see in the New Testament that Philip um, helps the Ethiopian eunuch 
in the book of Acts to see that what he's reading in Isaiah 53 is referring ahead to Jesus. Many Psalms, especially those by David, pointed to David's own experiences, yes, but they also seem to point beyond David to a coming one like David. And just as David suffered greatly while patiently waiting to become king, great David's greater son, the promised one, would also follow that pattern, suffering and then glory. And the the Jews had missed this primarily because they were blinded by the circumstances and their situation, where all they could hope for was someone to free them from the Romans. They had forgotten that they need someone to free them from their sin. The people, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, they escape Egypt. They're led out of Egypt to the promised land. And they blow it time and time again. So there must be something more than just living in a place. There must be something more. There must be forgiveness of sins, which we'll get to in a minute. If you read Psalm 22, it starts off, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's identifying with his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather David. And then he's fulfilling David's writings as well. Psalm 31 could also be included in this. Other psalms and plenty of prophecies, including Isaiah 53. So there's lots of places to see that that the Christ would suffer. The Jews had missed it, but it's there in the Old Testament. Also, that that the Christ would be Raised from the dead on the third day is a little more difficult to see. But the New Testament uh, apostles and authors give us some insight here as they see in Isaiah 55, verse 3. Um, Paul quotes this in Acts 13 to say that that Jesus would be raised, that death couldn't hold him. Psalm 16.10 says your Holy One won't see corruption. and And death and going to the grave is corruption. And yet Jesus left the grave behind. It couldn't hold him. And so he conquers death. Psalm 110 verse 1 also speaks to the Messiah, the Son of Man, being raised to God's right hand. Thirdly, Jesus claims that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to the nations, to all nations. Well, where is this? Because it seemed that God only really cared about one nation in the Old Testament. That he only reveals himself to the Jewish people. What, what's, what's that? Well, we can see even starting in Genesis chapter 12, that when God chose Abram, he didn't say, yo, Abram, I'm going to make a... Pe-. He didn't, I don't think God says yo most of the time. But he didn't say, Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and everyone else is going to die, suckers! Okay, I don't think Jesus says, God says that either, but I'm just paraphrasing, okay? What he says is, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so that God is going to use Israel to bless all the nations. And the Jews had forgotten about that. They put blinders on. They called the Gentiles dogs. They called them uncircumcised. They hated the Gentiles. And they missed that God loves all people. And that God had used Israel as an instrument. And so even in Isaiah chapter 2, there's a coming day when all nations shall hear about God. In Jeremiah 31, 34 God said, one day I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In Ezekiel 39, 7, God told Ezekiel, and the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. That word nations is the same word as the word Gentiles. Which every time I do this, I ask how many of you are Jewish and like there's like four hands that go up and the rest of us are Gentile dogs. 
Okay? Praise the Lord that this is true, that the gospel has gone to the nations. Malachi 1.11 references this as well as, as, as Haggai and so many other places in the Old Testament. But it's not, again, just those specific passages, but the whole story. Jesus fixes what was broken in the garden. Um, one of the things that I was reading a, a storybook with my girls, and they had a really helpful, um, it wasn't specific, but a generic phrase that helps them understand the story of the Bible. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. Okay? God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. All right? That's like a really quick story of the Bible. And that comes all the way from creation in Genesis through to Jesus and then beyond. So Jesus is fulfilling this story. He shows what the sacrifices and the sacrifices and the feasts and the tabernacle and the temple were only mere shadows of. When Jesus shows up and explains it and the apostles explain it, we look back at the Old Testament and we go, oh, now I get it. Now the picture is complete. It wasn't black and white. Now it's in color. Now I get it. Jesus fulfills every longing heart. He makes new creation out of old. How does this happen? Luke says it happens by the message being repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? Maybe you think of um, some weirdos out in the uh, corner, street corner, holding up a sign that says, repent, the end is near, okay? Repentance is not just saying you're sorry, you know, sorry, I, I didn't mean to do that, okay? Or some like these ridiculous public apologies, right? If I offended anybody, I'm really sorry that they were offended. Who are you apologizing for, to? Okay, no, no, repentance is much more than that. The word means turning. It means changing, So the proclamation of the gospel is a call for change, for turning from yourself and your idols to the one living God who has been most clearly revealed in Jesus Christ. It's recognizing your own inability to save yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. The Bible says you're dead. Dead people don't pull up on anything. And it's not explicitly mentioned here. Lots of other New Testament passages link repentance with faith or trust, as we've said. So the one who repents, believes, and they receive what? The forgiveness of sins. That is the whole point. Jesus did a work in Jerusalem, and now the message goes out to all the nations to tell what the result of that work is. It's forgiveness of sins. And this is huge. In 2019, this is your main problem. It's my main problem. It's the Republicans' main problem. It's the Democrats' main problem. It's America's main problem. It's North Korea's main problem. It's your sweet old grandmother's main problem. Because we broke it. We fractured God's good creation. And so we recognize that we can't, even if we grit our teeth and ball up our fists and try to be good, we fail. How many times have you told your, your kids or your spouse or your brother, or your, or something, I won't do that again. <laughs> Take that with a grain of salt, right? I won't yell at you again. I won't lose my patience again. I, okay, we, no, we're going to fall again. This good news is for a wretch like me. It's for the prodigal. It's for the, for the older brother. And so what we need to focus on, visitor today, I don't know if you figure you're like, what did I walk into today? This is not a good new, new year sermon, okay? Don't, you can't do your resolutions, okay? What I'm trying to say is that 
your willpower can't save you. You can't do enough good works to cover your shame and your guilt. You can't come to church and will your sin away. You can't come here and fake it. You can't serve on the deaconess board, the deacon board, the elder board, become a pastor and fake it by doing it yourself. You have to repent of your sin and trust the gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. It's good news. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is or the type of worship music you like or don't like. It doesn't matter who your parents are or where you grew up or what kind of degree you do or don't have or how you dress. Maybe you've grown up in the church all your life or maybe you just started coming last year or today. Let me plead with you, come to Jesus today. Repent of your sins and Jesus will forgive you. Don't put it off any longer. The great Christian hymn, Rock of Ages, says it this way. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the desperate cry of the sinner. In verse 48, Jesus tells the disciples, you're witnesses of these things, which gives them a responsibility. Okay, you saw it. Now there's something to do. Verse 49, behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Again, what a kind thing for Jesus to tell these freaked out people that are hiding behind locked doors because the Romans might come and kill them. He's like, guess what's coming next? Power from God. So stay here, hold on. We know from the rest of scripture that the promises of the Holy Spirit we find out in the sequel, um, Luke's leaving some cliffhangers here so that you want to you read Acts next to see what he's, he's leading up to. Okay, but he ends, he ends the, the book, he ends the story by talking about, again, flesh and bones, Jesus wanting his followers to be blessed, bless God, and bless others. Verses 50 through 53 close everything off. And Jesus leads them. Again, chronologically, this seems to all happen on the same day, but we know from comparing the other Gospels that, Jesus, that Luke is, is kind of just leaving out some details on purpose to tell his, his theme here. So we know that this is actually 40 days later. But Luke's not super interested in that here. He'll tell you more about it in Acts. He led them out as far as Bethany. And really briefly, Jeremiah, if you can throw that, that picture up, what we're talking about is Jesus leaving Jerusalem Okay, and heading down into the Kidron Valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane, up to the, the Mount of Olives, and over the other side. You see that? That's, no, you don't. All right. There is, to, to Bethany. Bethany's up and over the hill. Next picture, you can um, see this is a view of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. So they'd have to climb up that hill. And the next picture, this is a picture from the back side of that. So flip that over. And there's the little village of Bethany, kind of on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus takes them up to the Mount of Olives where you can oversee all of Jerusalem, their home base, their home mission. And he lifts up his hands and he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's a passive verb, right? Um, this, have anybody seen the, the movie Risen? We have it in our church library. Somebody saw it. It was a really good retelling of Jesus's uh, resurrection, except for the end when Jesus like blasts off like Rocket Man. It's, I was like, what Bible are they reading? It's not even close. It was like some weird Harry Potter thing or something. And like the ground like reverberates. That's not what happened. Jesus holds his hands up. and He's blessing them. 
and he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Um, we find out in some of the other accounts that, that a cloud takes him up, and it's not just like some cumulus cloud, like, Whoa! and like came to get Jesus like a chariot or something. It's, the, it's the, the presence of God, the cloud of God's glory that shrouds him. It's not like Jesus goes up, 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 past the moon. I mean, <laughs> Jesus is not, not going into outer space. Jesus is going into another space. He's going to heaven with his father at the, at the risk of sounding super nerdy, which is not really a risk. Um, this is Jesus going into another dimension, okay? He's going into the spiritual dimension that is invisible to us. What's interesting about this is that Jesus one day will return to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 tells us in the Old Testament that the Messiah will come back and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. We support a missionary, uh, Michael Zinn, in Jerusalem. Uh, a few years ago, Ron and I visited him while we were there. And his um, balcony of his apartment, he does his devotions out there, and you can see the Mount of Olives. And so he asked the Lord regularly to return while he's doing his devotions so that he can see Jesus coming, which would be really cool, okay? But Jesus is, Jesus is coming back to the Mount of Olives. He takes off from the Mount of Olives, and he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. What do the disciples do as he leaves? There's more that goes on in the book of Acts, but here in Luke, Luke says they worshiped him. And so I'm going to ask the worship team to come up because this is what we need to do as well. We need to end the, the, the gospel of Luke by worshiping him. They, go, they went back to Jerusalem with great joy. They were continually in the temple blessing God. Now listen, this is astonishing. They were worshiping this man. Weren't they good Jews? How could they do this? How could they worship another man? Didn't Jesus say in Luke 4, when tempted by Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve? Yep. So what should you take away from that? At the very least, these disciples believed Jesus was God and that he was worthy of their worship. And so the Gospel of Luke ends where it began, with faithful Jews gathered in the temple. Remember Zechariah at the very beginning of the book? He's in the temple worshiping. At the beginning, they were waiting for salvation. At the end, salvation has come. And now the disciples await the power to begin their mission, which is our mission. And as Gentiles, Luke makes clear that we will be included in this mission. We get to jump on and join the Jewish people. So like these disciples, since we have been blessed, let's bless God and worship Jesus in the power of the Spirit with great joy today. For the gift of your Spirit, we have been clothed with power. Lord, help us to to live out the truth of that song, that our cause would not be the cause of my 401k or the cowboys or my kids going to a certain college, Lord, but that our overwhelming cause would be the cause of your son, Jesus Christ, who has given us a commission that we are to go to the ends of the earth preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you, Father, that you've covered over our sins with the blood of your precious son, Jesus. Help us to live, to trust Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who has not trusted Jesus to cover up their sins, that today might be the day they come to the end of themselves and realize they must repent of their sins, believe, and that they would leave this place with a joy they can't explain. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.